0: As you're finding your place, we'll be in Psalm 31, 32, and 33 over the next several weeks. And I want to share with you something that God had laid upon my heart earlier in the summer about this issue of where we are as a nation, where we are as a people, at where we are individually in our spiritual journey through life. As we walk with God, we know that there are ebbs and flows There are highs and lows, there are valleys and mountaintops that we go to, and I thought to myself as I came across these Psalms and looking at this issue that King David himself, a man who had ruled all of the kingdom, who had great favor with God, but yet still experienced these highs and lows of life, what I refer to as surviving, reviving, and thriving in life. And the psalmist leaves for us an understanding in Psalm 31, 32, and 33 about these different seasons of spirituality that we go through, and I want to share them with you over the next few weeks, and I hope they provide comfort and edification and understanding for how do we go through those periods of our life. Quite honestly, as I look around our nation and I look around our congregation and I look around our community, many of us are and have been in the just surviving mode, we're just getting through. Uh, we're, we're doing the daily things, but to be honest, many of us are tired. We're exhausted. We're run down. We're just just in that place where the best way we could summarize the season we're in right now is a season of just surviving life. That's really where we are. So much difficulty, so much turmoil, so much pain, so much, many issues. And there, there are so many issues that affect us all differently. So I want to share with you a message today about just surviving. So when you think you're having a bad day, well, you know what? Here's an image for you. If you think you're having a bad day, what about the guy in the convertible? It's probably getting even worse for him, right? Because those Porta Johns, for those of you that can't see the image that are listening on the podcast, those Porta Johns are not going to clear that bridge, right? So how do we how do we have a good day despite what goes on in the circumstances that we don't have much control over in the life. And I think today you're going to see some principles today. Now, if you remember, most of us in the business world understand that we want to we want to begin with the end in mind, amen. Begin with the end in mind. Know what we're trying to accomplish before we start off on the task and it'll lay the foundation. So with that said, let's go to the last two verses of Psalm 31 at verse 23 and 24, and I'm going to share with you, we are indeed literally going to begin with the end in mind as we read the last part of this psalm together, and then we'll go through and take a look at those five things that we can apply to our life to help us overcome the seasons of surviving. Picking up in Psalm 31, verse 23. If you're there, say amen. All right. If you're there, say amen. All right, y'all had your coffee this morning. Here we go. Picking up in Psalm 23. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's pray together. So, Father, we come to you now asking your precious anointing upon the word that will be proclaimed. And, Father, may the Holy Spirit guide our thoughts, our hearts, our minds as we read your word. Father, we thank you. Help us to apply it to our daily life. And, again, challenge us where we are comfortable. And, Father, give us comfort where we are challenged in life. May we apply this Psalm of David to our daily life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a few things that I want to share with you. We're going to look through these five spiritual insights that will help us move beyond this issue of just merely surviving in our daily life. Five spiritual insights that I'm going to share with you. Number one, as we look at our text, go back to verses one through five, and let's read what David was saying as David was being pursued, as David was being persecuted, as he was being slandered against, and all of these issues that were going on in David's life. We find, I I would argue, seven good reasons why we can pursue God's refuge. The very act or word of refuge is to seek shelter from somebody. Often we refer to this place by many of our saints as a sanctuary where we can come to. And in that concept of seeking God's refuge, that would be a proper term. We come and gather today to seek refuge in God's word, in His sanctuary, in His presence, where we want to seek Him. So picking up in verse 1, "In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me; rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me; for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. And you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me; for you are my refuge, and into your hand I commit my spirit." You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now you may recall that that very last sentence there, we've heard it often during the Easter time frame where Jesus also responds with those words on the cross of Calvary, that into your hands I commit my spirit, proclaiming the same truth that David gave us many, many, many years before the crucifixion of Christ. Well, what are the seven reasons that David lays out here for us that we can see in this text Number one, we see that God is our deliverer, that David is talking about that. God is the one who actually delivers us from this issue of just merely surviving. He says, in you, Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, but in your righteousness. It's God who delivers us from the hands of sin and bondage. David knew this all too well. But he also goes on to say, God's not only our deliverer, but he's actually the rescuer. Our floods that have hit through Ida in the last several several weeks, as the folks in Louisiana, and I've even seen images in New Jersey of the flooding that was going on and the safety rafts and boats that would go to the homes, literally pulling people out of the second story of their buildings, as if the rescuer was there, and I watched as these young men, we're having a hard time getting onto the boat. And it was that rescue person that was there guiding them and helping take hold of them to securely put them on the lifeboat. Folks, that's what David is, is relaying to us here in this verse. In verse 2, incline your ear to me, rescue me. The very hand and action of God that rescues you and I from the things of this world. God is indeed our rescuer. But when the flood waters rise, God is not only our rescuer, But he's also a rock of refuge for us. This rock of refuge, if you get the mental picture of what that would look like, imagine being in a valley. Say you were visiting the Grand Canyon. This happens from time to time. And you're down there mountain climbing and and doing all your hiking trail, getting fit and loving the good life. And then all of a sudden it begins to rain. And then all of a sudden while you're in that crevice, the water starts coming in all around your ankles. And then it starts to get higher and higher and stronger and stronger. to so eventually it's trying to knock you off your feet. And the best you could hope for would be to find that rock, that high place in that canyon that you could scurry your way up to and stand upon it while the floodwaters rushed all around you, knowing that if you were off that rock, you would surely be swept away. Folks, that's the rock of refuge that David is referring to and who God is in our life. He is the rock that we stand upon when the waters of the floods are trying to knock us off our feet and we didn't even see it coming. What can we do? We can cling strongly to that fortress, that rock of refuge. A strong fortress. God is our strong fortress, referring to the aspect that nothing can penetrate what God has built around us. Nothing will keep us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. But he's not only our strong fortress, but he's also our guide. The very fact that he leads us, as David says, you lead me and guide me. Folks, we have the very written word of God to provide us the instructions to life. I once heard it said, the basic instructions before leaving earth is what the Bible stands for. But we know what it is. It's God's very word in our life that guides us. It's a lamp under our feet. It helps keep us on the right path, not the broad path that leads to destruction, but the narrow path that Jesus speaks about. Few find it, however, because we're so distracted by the lights of this world that we often get off course. He's our guide. He leads us. But he's also our sanctuary, another synonym, if you will, for the word refuge, something we can seek safety and guidance. In the Old Testament, there are scripture that refer to appointing cities of refuge that a man could run to if he was ever in the place where he had committed manslaughter unintentionally. He could run to this city of refuge, and when the guys at the gate found and saw the runner coming, they would allow him to come into that city of refuge. And if he was guilty of murder, he would be able to stay in that city of refuge and seek shelter until a certain period of time and restoration had occurred. Only then would he be allowed to leave. But he had sanctuary as long as he stayed inside the walls of that city of refuge. Folks, God is our city of refuge, He is our sanctuary. And lastly, David refers to him as our redeemer. To redeem, it's something that has been paid for and bought. It's as if a purchaser went and bought something from you and claimed it back. I remember hearing the story of Alan Jackson when him and his wife first met in high school, and how they had very meager means in their life. and 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 one point in their life when they didn't have much money, his first car was a, I believe it was a 1965 Thunderbird, white. He wrote a song about it, by the way. He finally got her back. And he had this car, and when they were dating, he fell on hard times. And like many of us, we sold the car to get enough money to just survive in life. And years later, though, as many of you know, his fortune changed just a little bit. And he has a little bit more fundage. Well, his wife, for a present, went and found that very Thunderbird. Not one like it, but ran the VIN number, found the owner of it, and purchased that car back and had it completely restored. Redeemed it, if you will from the situations of life, restored it, made it better than new, and gave it back to him as a gift for Christmas one year. Now, ladies, just take stock, okay? That's a Christmas present. Amen? Folks, that's the concept of redeeming something, of what Jesus did for us. While sin and the devil tried to take us away and buy us for a few pieces of silver, God said, no, you belong to me. And he sent his son on the cross of Calvary to die for you and I. He redeemed us with the blood of the Lamb that was shed for all mankind. And he said, now here, bask in my goodness, for I am your Redeemer. What a great love God has for his people. We can truly pursue refuge in times of difficulty in the Lord. God never said we would never come to difficult paths in our road. There are going to be road bumps. There are going to be potholes. There are going to be bridges that are washed out. There are going to be directions we thought we wanted to go that we are just not going to be able to do. But here's what I've learned so far in my short life. God has a plan for you. You may have been on that road, but God may have a different path that he wants you to go on. We can absolutely pursue God's refuge in times of difficulty. But secondly, notice in verses 6 through 8 what the psalmist leaves us with. Now again, I love listening to men who have been somewhere themselves, who have done it themselves, and then they're telling me what they went through. I don't care too much for hearing secondhand stories. I want to hear it from the horse's mouth, if you will. Give me the reality. I want, to, I want to know, I want to feel it when you tell me this story, right? This is David's story about prospering even in the presence of persecution. Look what he says in verse 6 through 8. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. You ever had an experience in your walk with Christ as a Christian where you know without a shadow of a doubt that had God's hand of protection not been upon you, You wouldn't be here today. Countless stories we can recount and we can recall. And we can say, you know, thank you, Lord, for sparing me. Thank you for delivering me. Thank you for not allowing me to be overcome by those things. I will indeed rejoice in your steadfast love. You have seen my affliction. But notice in verse 6 at the beginning of this, David leaves off with this issue of a recognition of what I call indignation. A recognition of indignation means to dislike intensely, to feel antipathy or aversion towards something. He's talking about the sin of those who are following worthless idols and what they're pursuing in life. David's saying, I hate those things. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's a contradiction because Jesus says if we have hate in our heart towards a brother, we're guilty of murder. We created the greatest sin. Well, this is a hatred towards an indignation of unrighteousness that even God himself despises unrighteousness. How do I know? Here's a verse for you. Hebrews thirteen sixteen through 19. For those who were in and heard of the great rebellion, was it not all those who left Egypt and led by Mo- were led by Moses? And with whom was he who provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that we are unable to enter because of unbelief. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the exodus of the nation of Israel and how they had to stay in the promised land, or if you will, the, the desert for 40 years because they were indignant, they were unrighteous towards God and never got to enter the promised land. Psalm twenty-six, five says it this way, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. That's their indignation that... David is speaking about those who pay regard to worthless idols and do not seek to follow the Lord. I hate those who pay regard. What is this paying regard that he's speaking of? He's talking about a recognition of the practice of those who are practicing their evil, their debauchery, their anything but godliness. The word recognition of practice is to regard or observe or conform one's actions and practices. David's saying, basically, I don't like what you're doing not only do I not like it I hate what you are doing the physical acts often our own actions and practices tell a lot about what we value don't they yesterday I had the privilege of being out and enjoying a little bit of outdoor time with my family and spending something I don't do often a day on a cornfield just enjoying the outdoors I was practicing something I found value in we do that often in our own life. We do the things that we make a priority and find value in. And what David's saying is here is, I find no value in those that are paying regard to worthless idols. Jonah would say it this way in Jonah 2.8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You see, there's a recognition of the practice. What we do says a lot about what we believe. What we do says a lot about what we invest our time in. And what we invest in often says a lot about the condition of our heart. Notice in the last part of verse 6, there's a recognition of the heart here. What are they worshiping? They are worshiping worthless idols, honoring the worthless idols. And I'd argue you don't have to be a Baal worshiper or an Asherah worshiper or a devil worshiper to, to worship the idols of this world. Idols come in many forms. They can be our four-wheeler. They can be our truck we drive. They can be our motorcycle we ride. They can be the home we live in. They can be the job or the title that we carry. They can be the amount of commas or periods or decimal points or lack thereof in our bank account. Lots of things in this world can be our idol. David is addressing all of them things. He says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols Often I think in the Christian life we can view outright paganism and we can see it clearly, but it's often more difficult to do what Jesus said where we remove the speck out of our own eye before we try to remove the plank out of the eye of others. We have idols in our own practice often in our own Christian walk that sometimes we don't recognize them for what they are. It's important that we follow and worship God Almighty with all of our heart. Why so? Matthew 6.21, Jesus would leave us with this reminder. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not there your heart might be, not, well, it might be okay, you can dabble in it a little bit. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus reminds us in following verses in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. But lastly, we notice in verses 7 through 8, David transitions to his own devotion. A recognition of what true devotion is. And he, he spells it out for us in this psalm in verse 7 through 8. Number one, he says, we rejoice in God. That's what he's doing here in the beginning. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Rejoice in God. We are glad in his love. We're delivered by His hand. We are free by His work. All of those elements are there in that last two verses for us. Do we rejoice in God, in His love, in His deliverance, in the works of His hands? I would argue David did. We too can. It's beautiful that we can understand that we can prosper even in a time of persecution. David was facing immense persecution. I'm going to share a little bit about David's story here in just a minute if you're new to understanding this or may not have heard it in such a way before. But look with me in verses 9 through 13 as we look at this issue that we also can plead with God for protection in a time. Point number 3, verses 9 through 13. Look at your Bible, follow along with me. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. That's deep, isn't it? Imagine the, the wickedness that was going on around David as they were trying to kill him. I'm going to share with you from Psalm 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 2 Samuel 15, what was going on in the King David's life? David had already overcome the persecutions of Saul more than once when David was anointed by Samuel, but Saul was the king, and Saul became in, with a, a fit of r- fury and rage against David. He sought David to pursue him, trying to kill him on multiple occasions. David fled for his life in the wilderness of Anghetti. In First Samuel 24, you can find that story. David chose, however, to do no harm to Saul on two separate occasions. In 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26, you can see where David, God had delivered Saul right into his hands. Where David was able to sneak up to Saul, who had been persecuting him, pursuing him to kill him. And David was able to cut off a little piece of his robe as Saul was going to the bathroom in the cave. But David chose not to harm the Lord's anointed servant, Saul, despite the difficulty But yet he was still pleading for God's protection. David would run out of that cave and say, Saul, Saul, look. And he showed Saul the little fabric from his garment to prove to Saul that David wasn't trying to take his kingdom or to kill him or to overthrow him, as many had proclaimed and told Saul to make him furious with David. Several occasions this happens. And if that wasn't enough, Saul dies and David becomes king. And then David is reigning and doing wonderful things and he has some more children and one child by the name of Absalom becomes of age and he becomes a young man and Absalom is just not happy being the king's son. Being David's son is just not enough at this point in Absalom's life. So he begins to conjure up a scheme to overthrow David. Let me read from 2 Samuel 16, 5-14 for a moment to give you a little background history from where this psalm is really coming from now not only was it king saul persecuting david and the the issues there but now david's own son is plotting to overthrow his father and not just for a little while for a long while absalom is building this plan second samuel 16 verse 5 when david came to barone there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continual what had gone on here. At this point, David is now fleeing from Jerusalem. At this point, Absalom has already conjured up his scheme, and he has already won the heart of Israel to his side. Now, here's how Absalom did it. And I find this interesting, because it happens in our own lives often. Absalom, David's son, would go to the city gate daily. And as people would approach to come before King David with their grievance or their wrong or their issue or their challenge, here's what Absalom would do. Absalom would meet them at the city gate. And as they were approaching to see King David, Absalom would say, no, no, the king has no time for you today. You tell me your grievance and I'll make it right. You come to me because David doesn't care enough about you to let you have time with him, so you just tell me what's going on and, and I'll fix all your problems for you. I really care about you. I know what's best for you. David doesn't have your interest at his heart. And for four years, the scripture tells us, Absalom was at the gate winning the hearts of the people, doing this day in and day out. You can imagine over a period of time, When you try to see the king who should be resolving your challenge, but you're told over and over and over, king don't care about you, he's only in it for his own profit. He's only there for his own gain. He doesn't really care about what's good for you. You can imagine how that happened. And then four years into it, Absalom has so many people that are following him now, he finally, the time has come, and he plans his plot. And he says to his father, Dad, let me go over to this place where I will worship because I made a vow to God and let me take some men with me and we're going to go and I'm going to worship there to fulfill my vow to God. David says, sure, no problem, Absalom. Go ahead and take whatever you need. Go and honor your obligation before God. And what Absalom did was he took many of those mighty men with him. Over 200 went unknowingly that Absalom was going to overthrow the king. And he does. The next thing you know, that sends all of this into motion with David now fleeing for his life. As he's leaving Jerusalem, he comes across this guy by the name of Shammai. And what is Shammai doing? He's doing the very thing that David spoke about in this psalm. He's cursing him. He says, I've, become, I've been forgotten. I am a broken vessel. Others are whispering. They scheme together. They plot to take my life. My adversaries have become a reproach, even my neighbors. I'm the, I, I'm the object of dread to my acquaintances. Nobody wanted to be associated with King Saul. Picking up in verse 6. And they threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, y'all listen to this part. Abishai. Now, if you're ever going to name your son something, you name him Abishai. This dude's got it right, right? Not biblically in the right spirit, but I like Abishai's heart here for a minute. Just listen to what Abishai, David's servant, wanted to do. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord and the king? Let me go and take off his head. (laughs) How many of y'all want friends like Abishai, right? I got a few of those, but anyway, I digress. But the king said, What have I to do with you, your sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai, and to all of his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to? It may be the Lord's will, look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David had a godly perspective of the situation of what was going on. So how do we overcome some wickedness that we see in our own life? Number one, David gives us the example, seek the Lord's counsel. Seek the Lord's counsel, not the counsel of men. Now, it's good to have godly men around you that you can talk to about issues. But first, it's got to start with seeking the Lord yourself. Seek the Lord's counsel, and he will hear. Number two, we abide in righteousness. We take the biblical high ground. It helps us gain perspective. You ever seen one of those videos, those movies where... The the human transforms into the eagle's eyes, and while the eagle's flying, they can see everything. I forget what movie that's from. But the eagle's able to fly, and the person on the ground's able to see everything from the eagle's view. Isn't it interesting when we get that perspective, though, that what the eagle can see from an elevated position, we can't see from the trench? Folks, I'd argue what we can see from the elevated position of righteousness, most others are not going to recognize from the trench either. But when we take the high road of righteousness in our daily walk with life, others may not understand what we're seeing, but we can see it from a godly perspective on high instead of down here in the muck like everybody else. We can change our vision and our outlook by seeing it like that mountain flying over the valley because we can seek the Lord's counsel. And when we abide in His righteousness, thirdly, we can trust in His vindication. What's his vindication? Vindication is a synonym for the word justice. We can trust in God's justice is right and true. Not our justice and often what we want to do. I, I love Joshua. When you read the book of Joshua, Joshua was a butt-kicking dude, right? Joshua don't take no slack from nobody. If it needs to be slain, Joshua's going to slay it. Because right? that's what God told him to do. You're like Abishai. I think Abishai and Joshua would have been good friends with one another. right? Not taking any junk from nobody. Doing the Lord's work. But true vindication, true justice comes not by our hand, but by God's hand. One day, God will hold every single person accountable for their actions. Remember, this life is but a vapor, but a mist. That will be here one minute and gone the next. We can seek the Lord's counsel. We can abide in righteousness. And we can trust in God's vindication to overcome wickedness in our own life. Now, I want to share with you a picture now, you may, you may recognize this guy. He looks a lot like C.R., to be honest with you. Doris, if, uh, if you say a side profile, I would, I would say C.R. comes to mind just a little bit, right? C.R. is a little more dignified, but that's okay. Now, this gentleman, you may not know uh, who he is, Johnson Oatman, but I want to share with you just a little bit about his life, and I think you'll understand how he resonates with us today. He was a prolific hymn writer, the son of a hardware store owner, a local preacher, and a life insurance salesman. Go figure, preacher and life insurance salesman. They kind of go hand in hand, right? Mr. Oatman became famous, one of the world's most renowned hymnal writers, producing in the zenith of his career over 200 hymnals annually that he would write. Had a gift. One often remarked with Mr. Oatman one day in a conversation, you ought to be a preacher preaching to a a congregation somewhere. And Mr. Oatman's, Oatman's response was, My friend, I preach to thousands every Sunday all over the world through my hymnals, through the writing that God has blessed me with. In regards to other works and activities and songwriting at his time, when others were writing different types of works and broadening their portfolio into different things, and they wanted him to to write about other stuff, here's his remark via a penned hymnal about his response. He said, let others sing of rights or wrongs. Sing anything that pleases, but while they're singing other songs, I will sing a song for Jesus. What a wonderful outlook on life. You may be familiar with one of his more better known hymnals. Let me share with you the stanzas and listen to the words without trying to sing along. When up on life's billow you are tempest-tossed, and when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? And does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings. Ever doubt will fly and you will be singing as the days go by. When you look at others with lands of gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven nor your home on high. Some amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your blessings, angels will attend, and help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings one by one. I remember singing that with my kids when they were little. Had no idea who this man was. Had no idea the psalmist in Psalm 31, what David would be going through in this time of his life, where he's got to be reminded about counting his blessings And the goodness that comes from us to proclaim God's goodness in our own life. I want to share with you verses 14 through 20. And I think that's exactly what David is doing. He's proclaiming God's goodness. He's taking stock in what God has done in his life. Look with me in verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord, and I say you are my God. Personal, intimate relationship. Verse 15. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and for, excuse me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O oh Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame, let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. David's giving us some understanding of what he was taking stock of in his own life. He had recognized the hand of God, not only of the deliverance from the cave in the hands of Saul, when Saul was pitching spears at David, plotting even to use one of David's closest friends that he loved like a brother, Jonathan, the son of Saul. David was recognizing throughout his life and his walk that all of those adversities, all of those persecutions, all of the standing before the giants Like Goliath, that no matter what adversity he faced, if he trusted in God that would deliver him from the bear and the lion, it would be the same God that would deliver him from a Philistine that was ten times his size. Trusting in God. He was taking count and taking stock. I would argue for our own life we can do the same thing. How do we take stock? Number one, when you're discouraged, count your blessings. Now let's try this, see if you all can follow along with me. I'm going to put the next one up on here, and everybody's going to say it with me, right? When you're discouraged, count your blessings, right? Let's try it it again. When you're discouraged, count your blessings. When you're burdened, count your blessings. When you're in want, count your blessings. When you're facing conflict, count your blessings. Look at the categories of what, what David was going through. Whether you're discouraged, whether you're burdened, whether you're in want, meaning there's something, great need in your life. Now, y'all, I ain't talking about that new shotgun, okay? I'm talking about the need, the need. When you're in great want, in great need, and when you're facing conflict, because conflict's going to come, especially if you're standing on the rock of righteousness. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Here's an image of what it means to take stock. If you've ever been to Lowe's or somewhere when you're trying to go buy that little thing you need and they're going through the inventory process and you got tags all over, do not touch stock, do not remove inventory, this one's been counted already. You know why they do that? Because it gives the store manager and it gives Lowe's, the big company, whether you're Lowe's or somewhere somewhere else, it tells you what you got for inventory. And ultimately, inventory means your value. It means what you have that's worth a great amount that somebody else needs that you can offer to them. Last time I checked, when we take inventory of our own life, when our hearts are examined and Jesus is found to be right in the heart of our inventory, we have so much worth and value to others, we can't help but want to give it away. We can't help but say, I got something just for you and what you need. Isn't it interesting when we take stock in what God has done in our lives? Salvation alone is enough to make us understand what God has done for you and I. So how do we praise God's deliverance in our life? I want to give you five truths. Let's look in verse 21 first, and we'll read through 24. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Meaning, when I was inside the fortress and those were surrounded around me, lobbing their bombs and lobbing their arrows and lobbing their swords and leaning the ladders up against the wall trying to get in, building ramps to overcome the gates, when on all sides I was surrounded by enemies. You were there. You have shown, wondrously shown His steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Five truths about taking stock in God in our life. Number one, God's love is steadfast for you and I. We truly are his children. He truly wants nothing but the best for you and I. You ever have a child and you're leading them through a situation in life as they're an older adult and you know you don't necessarily think their decision is the wisest thing, but you know you've got to love them through it and they're going to learn something from it. And on the other side, they're going to be that much better for the experience. You can't do it for them. It'd never take, right? They might even run away from it if you tried to do it for them. Folks, that's our life to a T, isn't it? God has to allow us to experience some things. And then on the other side of it, we realize just how much he loves me. Just how much he has done for me. Just how much he continues to do to guard me from those things. God hears the plea of His children. Number two, five truths. God's love is steadfast. God hears the plea of His children. David makes that clear to us. Even when David said, I am cut off from your sight, David said, I don't know what to do. All around me, I'm besieged. But guess what? But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for your help. God hears the pleas of His children. Now, let me make a distinction here for a moment, a very important distinction. We are not all God's children. I know that's difficult to hear, but there's a legal process, and we understand this even in our own world, that if we take in a child to love in our own home, and, and they're not our biological children, but yet we open the doors of our home and we express love to them Even at that point, they're still not my children. We understand we have to go through a legal process in our country of being able to adopt that child through the court system. And finally, some judge who has the authority to say that child now is legally yours signs a birth certificate and a document, those documents that flow after the adoption. And then on that new birth certificate, it will have the child's new name a new last name. It's only then that that child has truly been adopted into your family. Do you know it's the same way in our relationship with God? While we were all created in His image and in His likeness, He created us male and female. You can find that in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. But we don't become a child of God until we've been legally adopted and that legal birth certificate has been signed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the ink that signs that spiritual adoption. Jesus says, if you confess me with your mouth and you believe in your heart, then, you'll be raised, then you, that I was raised from the dead, then you will be saved. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. What we recognize Jesus did to adopt us on the cross of Calvary, when he stretched out his arms, his feet were crossed, and the spikes were nailed in. When he died for you and I, he provided the ink that would seal every adoption certificate from that moment forward. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never repented of your sin and said, Lord, I know I am a sinner, but like David, I want to seek you. I want to find a refuge in you. I want to find sanctuary in you. I want to find protection in you. Today is the day of salvation. If I believe with my mouth, confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in my heart, then I will be saved. Jesus makes it very clear. I came to seek and save that which was lost. For whosoever calls upon him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the reason Jesus came for you and I. So how do we know that God hears the plea of his children? Well, first, I've got to ask, if you've been adopted into the kingdom of God, then you're a child of God. And you can indeed praise God for the deliverance and take stock in the fact that he hears you. But if you are not a child of God, if you've never been adopted into the kingdom by the blood of Christ, you are not a child of God. But I can help you with that. Scripture can help you. God's word can help you. God himself sent his only son to help you with that issue, not to condemn you, for we're already condemned in our sins and trespasses, but to truly save us and give us a praiseworthy deliverance from all of those things. But God hears the plea of His children, and God values our love and our devotion. That's why we're here today. Now, you may think God is a vengeful God. He's an he's a unjust God. He's a God of arrogance. What kind of God would want me to surrender and just worship Him? Well, folks, if you put it in perspective for a minute, we worship a lot of things in life growing up. There are a lot of things drawing for our attention daily, and most of them are fleeting. Most of those things, after a few seasons of life, they pass away and our attention's redirected to something else. You know, God is the only thing that is unchanging that we can worship truly and wholeheartedly that will be the same yesterday, today, and forever, that is the only thing worthy of true worship and honor and praise and devotion and love only god everything else is fleeting if you worship your bride's beautiful good looks it will fade the the brown hair will turn to silver one day right that's the reality our health fades if you if you married him because of his stamina because he looks good and he's a guy you want to have on your arm as he's taking you to dinner don't worry it will fade you'll be following behind him in a walker one day right as he's shuffling in and you're tying his shoes That's what happens to all of us. Folks, the only thing worthy of lifelong devotion, of eternal love and devotion is God. And God has made a way for us to do that with Him. The greatest thing we could ever aspire to honor and love and devote ourselves to through His Son, Jesus Christ. Doesn't get any better than that. But lastly, God preserves the faithful. God preserves the faithful. I don't have time to read Psalm 23 to you, but that's never stopped me. So let me read it anyway. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. We're familiar with the verse, right? But God preserves the faithful. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Oh, why do we reserve this for funerals only? So often. It's the only time I'm asked to read that psalm. But man, what about in life when we read it from the perspective of being on the mountaintop with God? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Man, isn't it wonderful how God preserves the faithful. What a beautiful picture. Let me close with this image. As we wrap up this season of surviving, how do we get past beyond surviving? We've got to wait upon the Lord. We wait upon the Lord. Here's an illustration of what waiting looks like, right? Sometimes that's how we feel we are. We're in a lifeboat. And man, every day passes. We're just waiting, waiting, and waiting for a plane to come or a ship to come by. But when I saw this image, you know what I thought to myself? While we're in this stranded position, we often fail to remember just how much God has already provided for us. You notice it's probably cold where he's at. He's in a a freeze suit. Something our Arctic fishermen are taught to get into to preserve life so they don't die from hypothermia as soon as they hit the water. He's in a boat that's got shelter over his head to protect him from the elements. It's got pretty high walls. It can probably withstand some pretty deep storms. He's got a signal flare to let others know around him where he's at. Now, how long it burns, I don't know. Maybe he's got a case of him in that boat. But how often we don't take stock in all the good things that are going right in my life right in the midst of a storm. Man, aren't we thankful that God gives us an understanding of all that he's already done for us to prepare us when we're in the lifeboat. So what's the lifeboat look like for you and I? Here's another picture. Here's the lifeboat that preserves us. It's the very word of God. It's the trust and faith that we can put in who God says he is and that his word will never fail us. It is the signal flare that says, Come to me, all ye heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. It is the lifeboat that says, I will preserve your life not only in these days but in the life to come in eternity. It is the very thing, in essence, that we need the most. Man, how God wants us to do more than just survive life. He wants us to truly thrive as his children every head bowed and every eye closed we come to our time of, of praise and invitation and let me ask you do you know God as your personal Lord and Savior do you have a relationship through his son Jesus Christ has there been that time in your life where you've said Lord I know I'm a sinner but I ask you to forgive me of my sins or I seek you refuge security in your hands Father, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live all my days for you. Folks, if that's your prayer today, let us know that. If you're here today when we begin singing, you can walk down and and meet with me here or get my attention after the service if you don't feel comfortable with that. And I can share more with you personally about what God wants for your life. And yes, I do know what that is. And I will share it with you if you ask. And if you're the church here today and a member of the body of Christ and you profess Lord and Savior, I hope in seasons where you feel you're just surviving, we can turn and seek refuge in Him and realize when we take stock, God wants us to thrive through all of it. So, Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for this day, and it's my prayer that if there's one here that has heard this word, Lord, I pray that it brings comfort and encouragement and challenge to each and every one of us. Or if there's one that does not know you, we pray the Holy Spirit will lead them to conviction and to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We ask things in your precious name. Amen.